The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the rally, the S&P 500 flirting with 4,300 NASDAQ pacing for its longest weekly winning streak since 2019. We discuss and debate where your money goes from here. Joining us for the hour today, Joe Terranova, Kerry Firestone, Jason Snipe. And also with us for the hour today is BMO's Brian Belsky. He just raised his target on the S&P. It is now one of the highest on the street. Big shock. Some are saying we'll discuss in a moment. Let's check the markets. Here we go. The Dow is good for about 20. S&P was on the doorstep of 4,300. Backed off a little bit. You can see it's down by a little more than 10 points. NASDAQ has rolled a little bit as well, which is right now down about two thirds of 1%. But Belsky, I'm going to go to you because the NASDAQ is part of your story here. It is. Seeing the move in tech, which you've upgraded as well. But now your price target goes to 4550. It's the second highest on the street, um, only to Sam Stovall, who was 4575. Obviously, you figured I would give you the business too much if you went to the <laughs> highest, so you had to go just under that. That's exactly why. I feel like I'm inside your head, dude. So what's up with this, really? So thanks for having us. We, across the board with all three of our scenarios, increased our price targets by 250 points. We just thought that was apropos, especially given where we thought the worst case scenario did not occur this year. That's kind of number one. Number two, from a fundamental perspective, when you decrease the cost of capital and you decrease our equity risk premium and you decrease kind of what's going to happen in inflation, that helped us equate to our dividend discount model to pump out a bigger number. Now, <clears throat> the, first, the first thing you're going to say is Belsky 20 times, right? You're going to say that. And my retort would be, coming out of bear markets traditionally, and we wrote about this in our year ahead piece, that you see six multiple points increase from, from the bottom. We're, we're about halfway there. So we still think there's still multiple expansion. I would like to note, though, this is the very first time that we're overweight technology in, since 2019. And that's kind of a big call for us. And so we're getting a lot of feedback, let's say, that we're late on tech. I don't think we're late on tech. I think this is just beginning. And so um, we really think that the secular bull is still very much alive, our 25-year call. We think the, ten, the, the market bottom in October. Um, and we think that there's more upside now. Um, it's not an exciting number. We're talking 6% upside. But well, I mean, after what we've already had, it's kind of exciting to, to think that you know, where we came into this year, you know, with many assuming that it was going to be a, a tough year, at least for the good part of it, you know, for all the obvious reasons, you, cannot, you know, uh, the economy slowing down, the Fed still highly engaged. Um, I think a lot of people would take 45-50. Yeah, I, I think very much so. And, I, and again, I hope I'm wrong. I mean, our bull case scenario is 50-50, meaning 5,050, and that would be an all-time high on the S&P 500. I think we really need to see earnings get cranked up. And as we said in our note, obviously, the institutional investors we speak with and the market itself is really positioning for 2024 earnings. And, and this 220 number that our number is mm -hmm. for, for 2023 looks like a pretty good number. It could be a little bit higher, but we need to see significant contribution from tech, the 
second half of the year to make that number a lot higher. So you clearly were moved by the strength in tech, unforeseen by you and, and many others, obviously, from the beginning of the year, enough so that that's enough of a driver. And by the way, you're not, you're not the only one who thinks there's potential further upside to the S&P and earnings as a result of what's happening with AI. David Costin at Goldman Sachs says further upside to S&P is possible if investors see profit and productivity from AI, which they obviously do. I think one of the biggest misses that people aren't talking about is coming into this year, Scott, uh, next 12-month earnings for tech were actually modeled for below the market, okay, below S&P 500 earnings. And what we've seen over the last four or five months now, tech is beginning to surpass on an earnings growth rate. So revisions clearly, meaning earnings revisions on a fiscal year basis, clearly bottomed out. Now they're beginning to recover. So we're starting to see the semblance of not only earnings stability there, which has been our call all the time with along the time, I'm sorry, with tech, but earnings acceleration, and I think that's what's really going to guide it. I think what's, what's clear is that this AI revolution has blindsided the market, blindsided investors, blindsided some companies that were in the space that got blindsided by who was going to take the alleged lead in the arms race that we're witnessing, and now we're trying to play catch up. Well, in, in some sense, I, I think very few had factor in uh, the contribution to earnings that generative AI was <clears throat> going to realize. And it's and it's a reality that's here. It's now it's present. We saw it in NVIDIA's, NVIDIA's earnings. Um, I think it's concurrent with positioning, which coming into the year was massively underweight technology to a level that, and an extreme that we have not seen since the great financial crisis. Um, but ultimately, I think it comes back to leadership. And I think for the very first time since 2019, we've identified the potential leadership for more than a moment. If you go back and you reflect through 2020, we've had these periods of fits and starts. It was the work from home leadership, a transition to the vaccine and the reopening and the roaring 20s trade and the cyclical trade, but you could never establish consistent leadership over a significant period of time. And I think, Scott, you have the potential for that now, and that would lead you to doing what? Erasing the you from the conversation of the earnings recession and having the expectation be it's a right. Pay. And I think the most confounding thing for most investors, Scott, has been there's there's there've been three tech rallies this year, right? You had the January effect rally in January, where the majority of, of leadership came from the, the worst performers in 2022. Mm -hmm. Then you had the rotation out of financials into tech. Yeah. Then you had the AI boom, right? So I think a lot of investors on the first two missed it because they didn't believe it. Now they're all of a sudden believing it because the fundamentals and the earnings are starting to come through. And that's why I think the move is real. I would, I would also you know, suggest, Kerry, that we came into this year worried about, well, what, what, is it, what else is there that we don't necessarily see? That tends to have a negative connotation to it, which makes you assess more negatively where you think the market could go. Almost no one saw the AI stuff hitting the way it did, which is proving to be such an overwhelming positive for one part of the market. It just so happens that that one part of the market is the biggest part of the market, which is why the market's performed the way it has. Yeah, plus the companies that are part of that revolution, so to speak, are the biggest. They're, they're the biggest market caps. They're the biggest revenues. They're the biggest profit makers, not just in this country, basically in the world. So. Uh, 
a lot of attention. Um, and, and I think warranted not just because of AI, but also because they had such bad years last year. And the market from 3577 October of last year to now, 4,300, that's up 20%. It's not just up 11.5%, what we've done year to date, it's 20%. We haven't had the recession. Inflation is coming down. Trueflation, which measures a lot of different things, said yesterday 2.4% is what they see as the real inflation number today. The Fed's unlikely to raise. Earnings were not as bad as expected. I'm not trying to just be Pollyanna, but I'm telling you the reasons that people are starting to say we have to own the stocks that we haven't owned this year. And the group that we're going to first are the big tech names. But last week, every sector in the S&P was positive. That is the first time we've seen that since March. Well, and, and the, the jury, though, is still out, Jason Snipe, as to whether a broadening out of the rally is possible. Yeah. Uh, whereas late last week, it felt like, okay, finally, it's yeah. finally here. Uh, it's still in question, though, at, right. at this moment. No, and, I, and there's no doubt about it, but I'm, if I'm looking at the Russell 2000, right, which is up almost 8% year-to-date, has moved a lot this month. Also, energy, which has really performed, you know, this month. Again, we're seven days in. Um, also materials, you know, that, that have done well. And, I, and, I, and I, it goes back to me for the jobs report that we saw this. I know Carrie just mentioned, um, you know, we're seeing a slight uptick in the unemployment rate, but payrolls are still going up. ADP was positive. Uh, you know, we're also talking about inflation that is also starting to come down. We'll see year over year numbers come in this summer. And then to Carrie's point as well, we have a Fed that is likely not going to move this month. We have a CPI print and a PPI next week. Those numbers will come down, and I think that's why we're seeing some of the movement that we have. Amazon today, Target goes to 150 at Piper Sandler, reiterate overweight, upgraded to outperform, 145 at Edgewater. Apple price target from Dan Ives at Wedbush goes to 220 today. Um, nobody, it seems, thinks that this run that we've witnessed is about to sputter. And, I mean, if it does, it's a rest not any sort of reversal. It's, it's a pause that refreshes. I, I'm kind of chuckling to myself because so many in the hours after the Apple announcement were ready to have this referendum that it was a failure. And that's the peak for the stock. Yeah. The stock fell down four, you know, stock came off $4 post announcement and that's it. It's over for Apple. Um, that, that, that is just, there's so much ignorance in, in making that type of assertion and not understanding ultimately what this could lead to in the coming years. You have individuals, myself one of them, who paid thousands of dollars for the experience to go see Taylor Swift. And it was worth it from what, from what I understand, okay? And they're not, they're, not going to, they're not going to pay for the experience it's not, that VR potentially I'm just could gonna, provide? I'm gonna I'm going to come at you just in the point of it's not ignorant to think that 30 times earnings for Apple is a little ahead of itself. Agreed. Irrespective of what you said. I said it's ignorant to say that because the stock had a $4 sell-off post-announcement that that's the peak for Apple. That's, well, it that's could the be, narrative but I it heard. Could be, it could be a near-term peak on the stock. The stock just doesn't necessarily have to continue to go up, 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 right, up and but, away. But, but that's the that, that's the misplaced, the misplaced short-termism that currently exists in the market right now. Okay, the stock got a little bit ahead of itself, Scott. I understand that.
but let's not call it a massive failure and say that's the peak for Apple's stock price. Let's wait and see how this evolves over the coming year and what ultimately the contribution from this new product is going to be in the coming years. I think it's a fair pause though. that refreshes. Yes, but it's fair, Brian, to you know reassess where valuations have come to that have moved you to raise your target, that have moved you to upgrade technology, right? These yep. stocks are more expensive today by a fairly wide margin than they were when we started the year. Now, you can say, well, they're not as expensive as they were before, before they had the massive drawdown in 2022, but it, it's all relative. It is all relative. Uh, and it, it, what's really important, Kerry talked about it, uh, technology is the largest sector in the market. But what people kind of miss is the technology sector composition actually changed a little bit because the payment processors went into financials. So it made an opportunity for, for managers to overweight the sector for the first time in a long time because 30% is kind of the magic number right. when you're running large cap money. You don't want to be 30% in one sector. So that's why we're 29% tech, okay? <laughs> but we're very concentrated in our holding, Scott. So guess what's going to happen? And you're going to start to see these companies grow into their multiples. And we do think that, I mean, obviously Apple's had a big run and we need to see a bit of a consolidation phase, but we're big believers that the broadening out of the market is going to be the major theme for the second half of the year. Chart of the day today for us is Marvell. I mean, it's one of these AI stocks. Uh, there was a report today in the Liberty Times, it's a Taiwanese newspaper, that the company secured an order for Amazon's second generation AI chip. Now, nobody owns that specifically on the on the show today, but Broadcom is right in the same world and wheelhouse named best in class chip stock related to AI Bank of America. You own this personally and so, in the Joe T. If, if you are concerned to your point previously about valuations getting stretched on this generative AI thesis, then you trade away from some of the semis that have the extreme valuation, like I did with AMD, took the 18% profit and moved the capital into a name like Broadcom, which is more of a growth at a reasonable price. And without question, those ASIC chips are going to be instrumental in the infrastructure build-out of generative Broadcom's AI. up 42% year-to-date. Okay. That's, you think that's just fine? I, I never look past and say, okay, where was a stock previously? It was up, up X amount. How high is high? How low is low? Um, I think there's an excellent risk management lesson in understanding that you never make that prediction in either a stock that's on the decline or a stock that is rising. You're talking about a stock that on a competitive valuation basis is compelling relative to an NVIDIA, relative to a Marvell like you just cited, relative to an AMD. It's trading at a valuation that's less than the SMH itself. So, okay, it was up 40%. Year to date, it's got the, the consistency and reliability of earnings. Yeah. It has a diversified model. It has relationships with Al Alphabet and Apple. And it is a semiconductor yeah. name that I'm willing to own They're because volatile. it's growth at a reasonable <laughs> price. But Terry's not willing to chase chips here. Yeah, but Even at what Joe suggests is growth at a reasonable yeah. price. Are they unreasonable prices to you? Yeah, no, I, I don't think they're unreasonable. It's just that chips aren't really um, the type of names we put in our, in our portfolio. We have many uh, names that are high growth tech and communications. We've owned several of them. I mean, if you look at the big names like Amazon, Meta, 
um, you know, Apple, Google, et cetera. We own them, Salesforce, but we don't own the chips. But I think the chips, I think Broadcom particularly, is attractive right here because it took a long time to come back. And it's starting to, I think, come into its own, breaking out, you could say. And, you know, it's not in video where it's, a, you know, whatever, 100 <clears throat> times earnings. It's a much cheaper stock than that. It's so, just, I mean, NVIDIA to this point is like the stock of the year. Yeah. Uh, Jason Snipe reiterated top pick, 500 bucks price target B of A, overweight reiteration at JP Morgan. This is yours. Yeah, no, and, and listen, we, we talk about it a lot. I mean, generative AI has been a tremendous catalyst for NVIDIA. It's up 160 plus percent. And I think for us right now, you know, it's, it's about being prudent and managing the stock going forward. I think these are long-term secular trends as it relates to, to generative AI and how they affect the semis, semi-market. But I think for us, it start, it's, it's, we're, we're reviewing these names and looking to actually pull back some. I mean, it leads to the inevitable question as to whether if you look at NVIDIA and you talk about some of the gains of, of this year from this space, is this whole thing a bubble? which was obviously a question that we asked yesterday in, in San Francisco and sort of the epicenter of, of where all this is happening to Brad Gerstner of Altimeter. Here's what he told us. I think the greatest disservice we could do to, for investors, right, whether you're playing at home or whether you're a professional investor, is to compare this moment to 1999. In 1999, you had valuations of make-believe revenue and profits. It was the promise of what may come. We had 30 million people connected to the internet via broadband, right? It was a tiny fledgling industry without real businesses, without real free cash flow, and it was trading at dramatically higher multiples. Now, I mean, I would say that there's obviously an awful lot of hype. Um, there's an awful lot of hope. So it's not based on the absolute or the guarantee at this point. Uh, we just don't know. You agree with, with Gerstner? One thousand uh, percent. You know, just because stocks go up doesn't mean it's a bubble. Number one. Number two. Uh, if you go back from a psychological basis, we had rock star analysts and rock star investment bankers back then as well. Remember that? And we were just throwing darts at companies, and they would go up. And we'd be going into shops like Carrie used to work at. I'm not going to name who I was talking to in 1999 at her shop, where I was talking to a small cap manager, and they said we have to buy Microsoft to perform. We're nowhere near that. So we've got a long you were probably on that boat too, man. You always say, oh, I've been in this business for 30 years. Yeah, but I as know. If I've... you weren't doing this back then too. I mean, come on. No, I was, my, I, I remember going negative tech in, in May of 2000 when I was at a place called Piper Jeffrey, and it was not an attractive call at that time. But you have to make the call when you make the call. But we're nowhere near that type of euphoria in technology. No way. I mean, you look at the year-to-date gains for AI, you know, alleged winners. Uh, and thank you, John Spallanzani, for sending this over just now. It's NVIDIA is up 163%, Meta's 123%, AMD's 86%, Marvell 61%, Palo Alto's 58%. I mean, gains are unbelievable. What do, what do you think, Kerry, about the point that Gerstner makes? Is you get a little carried away with the comparisons between today and 99? Well, there are two things he's got going on there. It's different. Today is different than 99 because all these companies have, not all, but you're talking about big earning companies. I mean, enormous companies that sell a few of them at market multiples, not NVIDIA, but, you know, Alphabet does and Meta does. Um, however, 
this could start to go south. I mean, you get to a point where there are no more buyers. We might, you know, have that in 15% or 20% higher on any that? of these. And then it's degenerative AI. Position, de, de, degenerative AI, I like that. Um, because <laughs> positioning was so offsides, though, presumably you're not necessarily anywhere near that point. I, I don't Coming think into the year. Right, correct. We weren't at all. But, you know, Salesforce, again, up 60 plus percent. There have been a lot of big winners. And at some point, it happens in markets that there's a catalyst which has nothing to do with AI, but some other catalyst that investors sort of back off. Jason Let's hope Knight. it doesn't happen anytime real soon. Gerstner, right? <laughs> Was he wrong? Well, no, no, no. I, I, I would agree with a lot of what he already said. I think, um, you know, as it, as it relates to a bubble, it's going to spur competition. Listen, there's there's no way that NVIDIA, in my view, is going to earn own 70% to 60 to 70% of this market for the next 10 years. There will be other other firms, other operators that will start to get in play that I think will, will help the business. And I think that's part of what we're seeing. It's it's not it's not starting yet, but it will. It will start to play out over the next couple of years. There is a tremendous potential, and I think the guys out in, uh, in San Francisco, Gerstner included, uh, mentioned this in, in the course of our conversation. There is a tremendous first mover advantage 100%. here, as, as you've witnessed from, you know, Microsoft and the chat GPT deal and perceived to have missed out, like Alphabet was perceived, even though that stock's done quite well. It's not like, it's not like Microsoft's gone straight up and Alphabet's gone straight down. So let's, right. let's keep that in, into perspective uh, as well. So let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do our calls of the day, including a big price target hike for a stock hitting a 52-week high today. Jason owns it. Joe owns it as well. We'll debate it and we'll do it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Calls of the day. We got a couple of them today. We're going to do Netflix first. Price target increased by more than 20% to $470 at JP Morgan. Reiterated overweight. Price target goes to $500 at Wells. Jason Snipey first. Listen, love the call here. Um, what I will say about Netflix, and I think this is why I'm very bullish on the stock, they are really starting to monetize the existing base. The password sharing piece, this is not a project. This is not, hey, let's figure this out. It is starting to work. Uh, the ad-supported tier, I think, was discounted, and we're, we're seeing some, some movement there. Five million active users uh, recently that was recently reported. $7.99 per user that, that again, if we're sharing, we're going we're gonna to make sure that you're, you're paying for the services. So for me, when we talk about first mover advantage, mm -hmm. I think Netflix is benefiting from all that they've done in this business. And I like it as a, the, the, the streamer in the, in the industry. Joe, you got it in the Joe T. All based, right? on, all based on momentum, clear breakout. 
a stock is up 37% year to date, but yet it's what? over 40% below its November of 2021 all-time high. So relatively reasonable valuation when you compare it to some of the other streaming services like a Disney. Uh, password crack, you know, uh, the password. Crackdown. 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 Has, yeah, thank you for that. Crackdown <laughs> has helped Got you. That's why for here. sure. Um, yeah. But I think it's really been driven by a re re-energy into the momentum itself. Yeah. Uh, it's not so much the fundamental story. And I think a lot of the analysts upgrading the stock right now, they're trying to point to some form of fundamental factor that's been introduced. I think you have to call it the way it is. The stock's going up, it's gathering significant momentum, positions are being rebuilt by fund managers. Could that take it to $500? Yes, it can. All right, so the other call I wanted to get to today too was Mark Newton, he's the technician at Bunstrat. Biotechnology starting to lead within healthcare. Healthcare carry has been disappointing. Yeah, very. Biotech may be about to break out. He says it looks quite attractive to show relative strength versus healthcare. This is your wheelhouse. Yeah. Tell so, me about it. I, I think it's a good call. If you, you look at the last couple of years, and 2022 was one in which some of the big names in healthcare, the big pharma stocks, had outperforming years because they were safe and defensive, and anything that had a lot of risk, such as biotech, did not. So this year, we've got more of a risk on trade. If interest rates are peaking, which, you know, it, it, perhaps they are, but they're certainly not going to go up the way they did last year, that's good for biotech because these companies need money. They need to raise money. There haven't been a lot of uh, IPOs and certainly not a lot of secondaries, but that could come if the market keeps going. And there's so much that's in clinical trials and the big farmers need product. You have to be careful because these are very risky Well, names. they're hit or miss. Yeah, exactly. Well, you don't own anything really in right biotech now, right now. Right now we don't. We're, we're looking at a few names. You know, we're looking wow. carefully at what clinical are you trials. At? What's the best name you, you're looking at? Well, I'll tell you names that we've looked at, but we didn't buy. I mean, we looked carefully at Gilead. We've looked at Moderna. These are names that are interesting for various reasons because they have a lot going on and are low PE stocks, but have baggage with them. Uh, on the other side, there's names like, you know, Biogen, Vertex, big name market cap stocks that have a lot of earnings, but also have some problems on the clinical side. But, you know, maybe they can overcome them. And there are a lot of names under 10 billion to look at. Okay. Uh you like Brian Belsky, you like biotech, you well, like healthcare? Well, no, we downgraded healthcare to help fund the technology trade, uh, but we love biotech and we've owned Gilead for a long time because it has hair on it, because it's a value stock and it's growing the dividend. And we own Amgen too, um, as well. So we think we think biotech is where you're going to see a lot of strength in healthcare. Yeah. Joe, you have AbbVie, IBB, Moderna, Regeneron, Merck, United Health, Bristol Myers, Humana. Intuitive Surgical, J&J, Lilly, Thermo Fisher. And personally, I bought IBB, believing that biotech was about to break out. It hasn't. I mean, let's, let's be clear. Yeah, the, yeah. In, in theory, this is the right place to be, but in the practice and reality of what Price is doing, it's been incredibly disappointing. Uh, it was probably about three weeks ago, I thought we saw a breakout in CRISPR Therapeutics, which is a favorite biotech name with yeah. a lot of growth behind it. That breakout has kind of stalled out. So I'm still in the IBB, but I have to admit, it, it hasn't worked just yet. Okay, uh, we'll see if it will. Uh, down 2%. 
year to date is the IBB. Seema Modi has the headlines for us right now. Hi, Seema. Hey, Scott. Here's what's happening at this hour. Two people are dead and five others were shot outside of a high school graduation ceremony in Richmond, Virginia, Tuesday. The gunfire started as hundreds of people were leaving the building where the graduation was held. Police arresting a 19-year-old suspect and say he will be charged with two counts of second-degree murder. The main suspect in Natalie Holloway's unsolved disappearance was transferred to a new prison facility in Peru today to await extradition to the United States. Joran van der Sloot will be handed over to Interpol Thursday to face federal extortion and wire fraud charges in Alabama for allegedly trying to take money from Holloway's family in exchange for leading them to her body. The Kilauea volcano on Hawaii's Big Island erupted this morning for the second time since the beginning of the year. It is one of the world's most active volcanoes. Hawaii's emergency management says there's no indication any populated areas are threatened. Scott, send it back to you. Seema, thank you very much. Seema Modi up next. Virtue Financial CEO Doug Sifu is with us. We get his take on the markets right now. There he is. Halftime's back in just two minutes. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. And welcome back to Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani here at the Piper Sandler Global Exchange Conference. This is the annual gathering of the entire trading community. Let's talk with one of those members. Doug Sifu is the CEO of Virtu. It's one of the world's largest market makers. Doug, we're near a new high on the S&P 500, yet all I keep hearing is the retail investors aren't participating as much as they used to. Make sense of the trading. Who's doing the trading right now? Yeah, well, it depends what you mean by used to. So the volumes are still significantly higher for retail from pre-pandemic, but they're certainly off of the highs. And it's interesting because retail investors tend to focus more in the Russell 2000 names and not the large cap names. So what we've seen more recently is certainly at Virtu more of a sell imbalance from retail investors than we saw earlier in the year. And, and as a result, the rally has been more in the large cap names than in the small cap names. So it's been this divergence in the marketplace between large cap and small cap names. So the S&P 500 is moving up. Correct. A lot of the institutional investors are in the Russell 2000. So they're missing out on this rally. What, what's, well, no, what's we're the seeing, implications? Of yeah, this? the institutional investors are participating. Right. So we've seen in the last, certainly the last couple of weeks, volumes have picked up and institutional investors are moving away from safe harbor investments that were paying four or five percent and beginning to participate more in the market, certainly than they were doing in April. Retail investors that tend to focus more in the Russell 2000 names up until maybe yesterday, those names were not rallying as much. Right. So the retail trading spiked during COVID. That Correct. sort of dropped off somewhat. And how is the institutional investing affecting trading patterns? You seem to imply the institutional investors are the ones that are really stepping in, particularly in the big cap. Names. Yeah. What we've seen certainly um, 
from April has been a significant increase in institutional participation. I think a lot of that had to do with the debt ceiling negotiations. People were sitting there saying, I don't know which end is up. I'm not sure there's going to be a default. So there wasn't active participation by institutional investors in the marketplace. Now that you've taken that boogeyman off the, off the table, if you will, we're seeing institutional investors now participating much more meaningfully, but in large cap names, not in the smaller cap names. You know, one of the big uh, themes here at this conference is the impact of artificial yep. intelligence uh, on trading. Electronic trading changed the world 30 years ago. You were here for that. I was as well. Is artificial intelligence poised to do the same thing? How is that going to change trading and how is it affecting the way you do business? Yeah, I mean, we've been using it for years. So artificial intelligence and more meaningfully machine learning is a really, really important part of how we operate. And we offer it to our clients in a very transparent way. As markets have become so much more efficient, human involvement is important. But if you don't have algorithms that are smart enough to adapt real time to the marketplaces, then you don't have algorithms that are going to officially understand and, and, and efficiently be able to execute the market in a way that's in the best interest of your well, client. What does it mean on a practical basis so in terms of market structure? Does it make the market more efficient? Do you execute faster? I mean, what, what is the practical application in terms of what, what you do? You run a market-making business. Yeah, I mean, latency has already been reduced almost yeah. to the nanosecond, right? So there's no more, you know, speed has become commoditized. Really what it is is uh, understanding the, the, the complex markets. We've got a very fractured marketplace with 15 national securities exchanges. 40 ATSs, um, wholesalers, retail institutional. So if you don't have algorithms that are able to adapt on a real-time basis to those market conditions to find the pockets of liquidity to act most efficiently, then you're not execu executing properly. That's what we are capable of offering as both a market maker and an institutional broker. We offer those products to our clients. Speaking of algorithms, the number one question I get from the average viewer is, when are we going to get a personal digital assistant that's going to help me trade stocks? I can get Bob Pisani AI that's suddenly going to go into the market and yeah. we're going to make millions of dollars on that happening. Do you see that happening? And what impact, if any, would that actually have on people's yeah. returns? We're working on the Pisani AI right now. It has failed thus <laughs> yeah, far. It, it failed. Yeah, it has not. It has not it, succeeded. It rejected. Yeah, it got rejected. <laughs> Look, I, I think there's always going to be the need for the human. Right, that's going to make that, in, that informed decision that can look at macro trends. I always tell people when they come to me for investment advice, buy index products. Right? There are really smart people that are trying to pick names, but buy index products. So I don't think that AI is going to replace the stock picker and the yeah. human, human element of the marketplace anytime soon. Yeah, I don't think uh, if everyone has access to the same information, it doesn't change anything. Correct. Isn't that right? Correct. I mean, yeah. there, there's such efficiency and transparency in the marketplace today. It's very difficult to think that AI is going to replace, if you will, that human element of the marketplace. I, my colleague, Scott Wapner, has a question. Scott, okay. go ahead. Doug, good to have you on our program today. I, I do want to ask you about SEC Chair Gary Gensler, whom you've been especially critical of uh, publicly as well, mostly as it relates, I think, to market structure and payment for order flow and, and things like that. You've called him, quote, a politician, not a regulator. I'm curious as to what your view is of his crackdown on crypto um, I believe you, you guys must do some sort of, of crypto trading, some crypto-related business at Virtu. Are you supportive of that crackdown and more regulation in that area? Yeah, look, we, we've always been very supportive of regulation and transparency. Certainly to the extent there are bad actors, it is the chair's job to act as the policeman of the market. Where I have been critical of Gensler, and I think it manifests itself in crypto, is that this is a problem that should have been addressed years ago. Certainly there should be a joint legislative solution, but to, to regulate through enforcement, which he's done for the last, certainly the last two days, but the last couple 
of months and couple of years provides no clarity to the marketplace. There are a lot of good actors out there that think that this is an asset class that should be, that should be pursued. And so to have ambiguity and, in, and enforcement uh, uh, actions brought as opposed to some, hey, this is, these are the rules of the road, come in and register, but at least describe what the rules are and provide appropriate forms for registration. To me, that's the job of a regulator. I think it is very political to go on CNBC and say, we already have digital currencies, we don't need any more. That's what the Congress should do, not the head of the SEC. Sure, but how, how could you effectively regulate something that is ostensibly so new um, to have expected regulation to have been rolled out years ago, um, how likely could that possibly have been as we were, I think, all trying to collectively get our arms around what crypto was, uh, which coins were quote unquote good versus bad and how big this industry could be and, and what the ramifications would be on the individual investor? Well, look, the, the chair has not been shy about proposing regulation. So, you know, two years ago, they could have put out a slew of, of proposed rules in terms of what is a digital asset, what, what needs to be registered, what's a security in our view, what type of securities exchanges should be covered by digital assets and which shouldn't. The lack of clarity there has meant that the major actors have been hamstrung and frankly don't know which end is up. And the result is going to be, in my view, years of litigation and a lot of wasted lawyer fees, whereas we could have gotten ahead of this in a collaborative, you know, this shouldn't be a partisan issue. It really should be a bipartisan solution. Let me talk to you. Uh, this segment, we usually talk about exchange-traded funds. It's amazing to me they are now 30% of the volume yep. uh, of trading on a daily basis, and, of course, a big part of your business. They used to be vehicles for passive investors, long-term buy and hold. What I see now is active traders, institutional and retail, using them to go in, in the market, out of the market on a daily basis. Can you give us some observation on how that's affecting your business? Yeah, I mean, five years ago, the notion of an active ETF was sort of a novelty, and now it's regular part of, of market structure and what we do. And we act as an authorized participant or a market maker with respect to hundreds of active ETFs. And I think, as you indicated, it provides a lot of benefits. It's, you have daily liquidity, you've got real transparency, there's some tax attributes and benefits to being an ETF as opposed to a mutual fund. So I think that's where the world is going and you see a lot of asset managers that are embracing active ETFs as, as a sub-asset class, if you will. And uh, we at Virtu have been very uh, you know, ahead of the curve there, working both with the regulators and with asset managers to come up with active ETFs that work, where market makers can provide real liquidity and narrow quotes which make them more attractive then to retail and to institutional investors. I've been covering this business for 25 years, and it's remarkable to watch the ETF business continue yeah. to grow. Doug Sifu, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure having you on here. Thank you. Coming up on ETF Edge at 1.15 today, Howard Lutnick, the chairman and the CEO of BGC Partners, and TradeWeb's CEO, Billy Holt. We will be discussing recent trading trends in the stock and the bond market, and the big theme here, AI and the future of trading. That's ETF Edge. CNBC.com. Plus, coming up today at 3.30, don't miss it, we'll have SoFi CEO Anthony Noto in an exclusive interview on Closing Bell. Scott, back to you. Yeah, looking forward to that as well. Uh, Bob, thank you so much. And give our thanks as well to Doug Sifu for joining us today here on the Halftime Report. Up next, betting on the banks. Belsky just added two new names to the value portfolio. We'll tell you what they are next. We're back on the half. Our Brian Belsky. Scott BMO buys Schwab and Citi in the value portfolio. Now, I remember 
I don't know if it was 18 months ago at this point or whenever it was when I asked you your favorite sector and you said financials, 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 right? You remember that? Yes, I do. Um, why is now the moment for these financials? Well, uh, on a timely basis, you know, Schwab got hit pretty hard. Mm -hmm. uh, and we love the broker-dealer business and we love the RIA business. And we think that's a scalable business. So it fits one of our primary longer-term themes for financials, which is scale. And given the price drop, we thought it was a timely opportunity mm -hmm. to add to our value portfolio. Taking a step back and looking at the broader picture, value, we believe, is defined by the financial sector with respect to price to book and price to earnings, and especially where balance sheets are. That's why we added Citigroup. Now, a little-known fact about Citigroup, they, they just recently hired Andy Sieg from Merrill Lynch to run their wealth management division. Not a lot of people are talking about this. He's a hidden gem. He's a former colleague, great man. I think there's going to be a lot of great business there transitioning over to Citigroup. And Citigroup is the quintessential, I think, value name within the big banks. Now, remember, we came on your show April 5th and said, we published a piece saying Bottomfish Financials, widely panned, but it's worked out so far. And in fact, some of our- <laughs> Widely panned. <laughs> 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 and you like that? And, yeah. and oh, by the way, some of the small mid-cap banks that have gotten crushed because a lot of people threw the baby out in the bathwater, we held on to them. And a couple names in particular, Glacier Bank and East West Bank are both down around 20%. Um, but now they're up 20% so far this month because their balance sheets are clean. Great management. They didn't get over their skis in terms of their loans. And that's stock picking. So you don't have to just throw out all the banks with the bathwater. You have to kind of roll up your sleeves and do the work and find the good ones. Carrie, you own Schwab, yeah. right? Bought a little bit more as well uh, in the tumult around that stock. Exactly. So Schwab uh, is one of the banks with, I guess, the common denominator, a San Francisco origination, just like Silicon Valley Bank. And First Republic. Charles Schwab was in San Francisco, and it just cratered when the other banks did, but not at all for similar reasons. I mean, this is a company that had inflows in March and April. It's not at all the type of company that a bank that's lending big time to, you know, new tech firms or all of the uh, high mortgage um, homeowners are buying, so we like it. It's 13 times next year's earnings for sure. You know what? I'm going to interrupt this conversation for a moment because I, I see something moving. Guys, can we throw up uh, Paramount, please? P-A-R-A? -A? Uh, because that stock is uh, jumping. The Wall Street Journal is uh, reporting that uh, Amazon is reportedly uh, in talks with Warner Brothers Discovery on ad tiers, but you also have you know, Paramount there. Um, you can show some of the other stocks, too. Uh, but that is driving this headline uh, from The Wall Street Journal is driving that stock uh, higher at this moment. So I wanted to just focus on that for a minute, give you some you know, real active movement uh, in the market, which looks to be about 9 percent uh, at this at this uh, particular time. Let's get back to financials. I just want to highlight that for, for our viewers. Would you agree with Belsky about some of these financials? Well, listen, I own Bank of America. I own Morgan Stanley. I'm not happy with the performance uh, so far from either. The only financial that I've really added in the last several months has been J.P. Morgan, and I'm glad that I did add J.P. Morgan. I think when you look at the financial sector and you look at the banks, you have to stay up high in quality, but you also have this competition now from those that look at the financial sector and say, I could own Visa. I could own MasterCard mm -hmm. very happily, and that covers the financial sector exposure. 
exposure. When I look at the uh, quality momentum strategy we've run, the best performing financial that we own right now is Arch Capital Group, a name we really don't talk about very much on the network. Good so company. great company, right? Yeah. Arch Capital, American Express, very quietly. Recent performance is very strong. You could look at that name as well, as well as Berkshire. Right. So I'm not looking at the money center banks and saying I want to own them all collectively because I just don't see the fundamental tailwind there right now. So we'll, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll try and give you a little bit more here. Again, this headline from the journal, Amazon in talks to bring ad-supported versions of Max and Paramount Plus to Prime Video channels. That's according to sources from the Wall Street Journal. If you, uh, We'll take a look at both of those stocks, Paramount, WBD, on a day really dominated by what's happening at CNN and the management change for Warner Brothers Discovery. That's front and center, but this, this move is uh, moving those stocks. We'll show you more when we come back after this. Let's get more on that uh, story that just crossed uh, from the Wall Street Journal about Amazon and streaming. Our dear Jabosa is joining us now, as you see, from San Francisco with more. What do we know here? So we know, according to the Wall Street Journal, that Amazon is planning an ad tier for its Prime Video streaming service, which doesn't come as a surprise. Many other streaming services have already done this. It also doesn't come as a surprise because advertising has been such a strength for the business as a whole. AWS, that cloud computing business, has really been the profit engine for a number of years, while its core business, e-commerce, has typically been less profit generating. Advertising is another high margin business. Now, I've reached out to Amazon, Scott. I haven't heard back yet. Likely they will say no comment. But again, it shouldn't come as a surprise, especially because Amazon, you could even argue more than some of the other mega caps, has been under pressure to cut costs. It doubled revenue over the pandemic while its profitability fell off a cliff. Um, there was that note from Bernstein this morning, almost an activist letter from the analyst saying that they needed to focus, hone in more on a strategy that sort of focused on some of the more profitable units. Advertising would certainly be included in that. Yeah. Dee, thank you. Thanks for jumping on on this. Uh, interesting moves in those stocks. We'll continue to follow that. Deirdre Bosa, thank you very much. Uh, Jason Snipe, I mean, I, I go to you. Obviously, Netflix is your play. If Jim Labenthal was here, I would yeah. obviously go to him because he's uh, Mr. Paramount. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he suffered some pain in this stock, but uh, it's getting sure. a nice move here. Listen, I mean, it, it's, it's what we talked about earlier. I think the ad supporting tier and just sharing, password share, that business, there's opportunity there. There's clearly opportunity and, there, and there's some runway. And, and to Dee's point, there, there's margins in, in, in the advertising business. And I think that's why they're moving forward and that's why the stock is moving. Joe? Paramount's just not, you know, not my kind of stock. Uh, it's a stock where the momentum's been clearly broken for a significant period of time. You know what the play here was? It was, it, it seemed to have developed. Remember, um, Becky Quick asked Buffett about their Paramount stake, and he sort of laughed it off like, we'll see. Um, mm. Made everybody think that this guy's not long for that name. And that even Labenthal himself, we've, we've asked him, the impetus for owning the stock now is playing for a deal is playing for an acquisition. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not about that, which is causing the shares to jump, but is that, if you own this stock, is that why you would own this name? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's always going to be mergers and acquisitions or divestitures in this industry. And, you know, right now we're in a period of flux, and why not Paramount be one of the players? All right, we'll do final trades uh, after this quick break. Dow still holding on to a 30-point gain. Uh, S&P tried to get to 4,300 again uh, today. It dropped back. It's about 30 points off that level. We'll do finals, and we'll do it next. Closing bell, 3 o'clock today. We finally grabbed him. Marco Kalanovic is coming on today. Uh, he's made a lot of market calls lately. Uh, we'll press him on his view 
about what stocks can do over the next few months. John Mowry is going to be with us, too. He has been real bullish on the market. He's been right of late. Courtney Garcia will be with us as well, and we will see you at 3 o'clock Eastern time. All right, let's do final trades. Carrie Firestone. You go first. Okay, I'm giving you HQI Health Equity. It's the largest of the health savings plans companies. And if you're in a business like this with high employment and interest rates going up, that's good for your business. And the stock's breaking out. Jason Snipe. I like American Express here. Total network volumes are up a healthy 16% year over year. Cross border travel is coming back online. I like AXP here. What do you got, Joe? EQT, it's a name that I'm long, and we're finally getting a breakout above the 200-day moving average. This is one of the world's largest natural gas producers. I understand that we're seeing depressed natural gas prices, but longer-term contracts are going off at a much higher price. Any form of a price spike over the summer, EQT will benefit from it because it's showing remarkable resiliency right now. How much does natural gas have to go up for EQT to benefit EQT's from it? Because they got a two-handle on it yeah, still. But, but EQT, you know, look, natural gas, I think, is somewhere around 230 right now. EQT is already working currently in that environment. So it just needed natural gas to stop going down as precipitously as it was. Okay, and you think it, you think it will? I think natural gas has bottomed, yes. All right. Crude's up today, uh, by the way. What's your final, Belsky? I'm going to be contrarian. AT&T down 15%, 7% dividend yield, $16 billion of free cash flow. Uh, they're focusing on their core businesses. Let me ask you about energy real quick, since Joe went there. And yeah. we have a few moments before we go. Do you like energy here or not? We like Canadian energy a little bit more. I think the Naturally. companies are better um, better managed. And I think the growth is going to be... Did they pay you to say that? I No, I mean, Enbridge... The BMO folks get mad yeah, if you don't no, say that? No, Suncor and, t and, t and Tech right. and, and Enbridge. That's All where right. I'd go. We'll see you soon. Thank you. That's appreciate Brian it. Belsky. All right, I'll see you on the closing bell. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. People today can spend half their lives over 50, so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.